If someone had asked me a year ago who Ned Christie was, I'd have probably said he was just another Indian Territory outlaw, in the same vein as Cherokee Bill or Henry Starr. And I don't think I'm the only person out there with this misconception. Back in the 1970s, Time Life put out a series of books on the Old West. And I personally have, in my possession, a copy of the one titled Gunfighters. I've had it since I was a wee little lad, and it has seen better days. The pages are no longer bound, they're all loose and out of order. A testament to the countless hours I spent flipping through its pages when I was a kid. There are a couple of pictures of Ned Christie in the book. There's the one when he was still alive, long hair, holding a rifle in one hand and a revolver in the other, and another pistol strapped around his waist, looking like a damn outlaw. And then there's the other one, where he's dead, propped up against the door, level action rifle, resting in his lifeless hands. There's not a whole lot written in the book about Ned Christie, though. He's simply referred to as a, quote, elusive Cherokee outlaw who roved the territory as a train robber, horse thief, and whiskey peddler. Christie had built himself a log fort high on the rim of a cliff-sided canyon, and when a 16-man posse tracked him there, he showed no inclination to surrender, end quote. That was really the extent of my knowledge when it came to Ned Christie, that and the pictures. But what if I were to tell you that damn near everything that was published about Ned Christie in that Time Life book was untrue? Join me today as we delve into the real Ned Christie and try to separate the man from the myth on this most recent Indian Outlaw 100% Cherokee and Zero Choctaw edition of Bloody Beaver Podcast. Born in Newark, New Jersey in 1962, Ned Christie would go on to become the 55th governor of the Garden State, as well as a lobbyist, political commentator, and a lap band survivor. Wait a second. Ah, dang, dang it. Sorry, y'all. I was plagiarizing from the wrong Wikipedia page. Again. That was Chris Christie, not Ned Christie. Gosh dang. Let me find the right one. Okay, okay let's try this again. Got my Christie's mixed up. It's important when you're plagiarizing to get your sources right. I gotta make a sticky note on this next time. Okay, cue the music. Ned Christie was born on December 14th, 1852. Okay, yep, that sounds much more accurate. In present-day Adair County, Oklahoma. But back in 1852, there was no such thing as Adair County. Matter of fact, it'd be another 54 years before that particular county would come into existence. When Ned Christie was born, the area was simply known as the Going Snake District of the Cherokee Nation. And before we go any further on Ned himself, I think it's important to take a look at the Cherokee people. I think doing so would give us a better idea of who Ned was and how he grew up. Back when my ancestors were still running around trying to dig potatoes out of the ground in Ireland, the Cherokee were already flourishing in the southeastern portion of present-day United States and had been for quite some time. The Cherokee language is part of the Iroquoian language group, and one theory is that the Cherokee migrated south from the Great Lakes region. Another theory is that the language got to start in the Appalachian region, and there was a split about 4,000 years ago between the northern and southern Iroquoian speakers. 4,000 years ago. That was around the same time the Stonehenge was built. The same time that the first horse became domesticated and glass got invented. Was glass invented or discovered? I, uh... I don't really know what glass is. I am what the medical profession refers to as an idiot. Enough about me, though. Back to the Cherokee. They were an agrarian people, and that's fancy talk that means they cultivated the land and grew crops. They also lived in permanent or semi-permanent villages. Their first recorded contact with Europeans was way back in 1540 when a Spaniard named DeSoto passed through their land. Skip ahead another couple centuries, and there's a whole lot more contact with Europeans. Due to this exposure to European culture, as well as influence from missionaries, many Cherokee would convert to Christianity, and in doing so would send their kids to Christian schools or seminaries. And this was not the extent of the Cherokee assimilation into European culture. They were part of what was known as the five civilized tribes. And as such, they had certain practices that the white settlers at the time considered, air quotes, civilized. Even as early as 1828, the Cherokee had their own written language published their own newspapers. They even had their own written constitution to govern themselves by. They built homes and farmed land, some even going so far as to emulate their white neighbors by building plantations that were worked by slaves. Ned Christie's father, Wade Watt Wakigu, was born in 1817 at the base of the Smoky Mountains in present-day Polk County, Tennessee, 
not far from the northern border of present-day Georgia. And at that time, this area was part of the traditional Cherokee territory. This was before the Trail of Tears, back when the Cherokee Nation encompassed over 120,000 square miles. The eastern Tennessee and northwestern Georgia area, where Ned's daddy was born. Then they also had northern Alabama, northwestern South Carolina, southwestern North Carolina, western Virginia, and eastern Kentucky. You get the picture. A lot of land, much of which was fertile and rich in resources such as iron ore and gold. This made that land highly desirable, so, of course, the government was eager to displace the Cherokee and move settlers in on their territory, which leads us to the Trail of Tears, an evil blot on our nation's history as far as I'm concerned. For those of you unfamiliar, the Trail of Tears was the result of the Indian Removal Act, a forceful removal of about 60,000 members of the five civilized tribes, including the Cherokee, from their homeland in the southeast all the way to Indian Territory or present-day Oklahoma. And Ned's family was among those forced to endure it. They made the trip in 1839, and sadly, Ned's great-grandmother, Betsy, didn't make it. She was one of at least 3,000 natives who perished on the harsh journey. The area that the Christies eventually settled in, the area that Ned grew up in, the Going Snake District, is up in the northeastern part of Oklahoma, east of Muskogee and northwest of Fort Smith, Arkansas. And as much trash as I talk about Oklahoma, from what I can tell just from the pictures that Google decided to show me, this area does seem really pretty. According to Devin Mahisua, author of Ned Christie, The Creation of an Outlaw and Cherokee Hero, a book I highly recommend if you want to learn more about Ned, according to her, back in Christie's day, this going snake district was teeming with wildlife, such as deer, bear, squirrels, rabbits, and turkey. Ned himself was supposed to be one hell of a turkey caller, and the area was crisscrossed with streams, had lots of timber and edible resources like plums and blackberries. The Christie family, just like many Cherokee, were farmers. They had a milk cow, they raised chickens, they grew corn, beans, potatoes, and pumpkins. They traded with other farmers for goods like peanuts, sweet potatoes, watermelons, black-eyed peas, and honey. And Ned's particular band of Cherokee were the Kitua, described as being one of the more traditional bands. But traditional or not, I think it's important to make a distinction between Ned's people, the Cherokee, and other tribes that inhabited the West during the time of his birth. When we think about Native Americans in regard to the time period that I normally discuss on this podcast you know, the 19th century, west of the Mississippi, we have a tendency to lump them all in the same category. You know, dances with wolves Indians, right? Living in teepees and hunting buffalo and wearing feather headdresses. In reality, there were many different tribes with many individual cultures and different ways of life. As far as Ned Christie goes, he did not grow up in a teepee. He wasn't part of a nomadic hunter-gatherer culture. They were farmers who lived inside of houses. Matter of fact, the town of Taliqua, not far from where Ned grew up, had their own Cherokee courthouse, couple of hotels, a grist and flour mill, a drugstore, a livery stable, an ice factory, post office, law offices, and doctor offices. Hell, they even had their own telephone line by the 1880s. So we're not exactly talking the state plains of Texas here. Ned Christie was born just a few years after Quanta Parker, but the two had vastly different upbringings. So just something to keep in mind. Ned received an eighth grade education. He could read and write, both in English and Cherokee. So right off the bat, he's got me beat. Hell, I can barely speak one language. Well, one and a half if you count Pig Latin. Upbe, uhe, auntie Aye, Ray? When Ned was 10 years old, the Civil War broke out, and this would have a big effect on the Cherokee Nation. Hell, the entire United States was divided. You know, brother against brother. And it was the same way with Ned's people. Many Cherokees sided with the Confederacy during the war. Ned's family, however, were said to be anti-slavery, and his father ended up fighting on the side of the Union. And it was after the war was over that crime in the Indian Territory really ramped up. Those years following the Civil War all the way up to the turn of the century, you know, basically when Ned was coming of age and becoming a man, is where Oklahoma really cemented itself in Wild West lore. This was the era of Bass Reeves, the Dalton Gang, Bell Star. The era that Hollywood portrays with the fictional Rooster Cogburn in the True Grit movies. In 1866, the chief of the Choctaw Nation, which was just south of the Cherokee Nation, claimed that every species of lawlessness, violence, robbery, and theft had invaded his tribal lands. This was also when many tribes like the Comanche and Kiowa were forced to the territory placed on reservations. So you had a situation where a whole lot of different cultures and people were just trying to survive side by side. An area where outlaws would disappear to and hide out in after committing crimes, but also where normal people, like Ned's family, were just trying to live their best life. This is the environment that Ned grew up in. But it wasn't all doom and gloom, or some sort of apocalyptic survival of the fittest type situation. Ned received an 8th grade education, and he, like all of us, had hobbies. 
If there had been online dating back in Ned's time, his profile might have listed playing marbles or stickball as some of his favorite pastimes. Evidently, he was one hell of a fiddle player as well. And as Nate grew older, legend has it that he really grew, eventually attaining the height of six foot four inches tall, which to his eternal annoyance resulted in complete strangers just constantly coming up to him and asking, how's the weather up there? And each time somebody asked him this question, they always wore that same expression. You know, that smug smirk one wears when they think they're the cleverest person to ever walk God's earth. Others, showing a little bit more tact, would simply try to find common ground with Ned by assuming that due to his height, he played basketball. Everywhere he went, people were always asking him if he saw the game last night or whether or not he thought Kobe was better than LeBron or vice versa. And according to sources, it was these constant comments about his height that eventually forced Ned into a life of crime. One too many tall jokes, and he just sort of snapped. Started robbing trains and scaring white women. No, that's not true. Uh, neither is the part about him being six foot, four inches tall. I don't know where this tall tale, huh, get it? I don't know where this tall tale uh, comes from, where the myth started, but it's clear as day that he wasn't that tall when you look at his pictures. The one with the posse members surrounding his body proves this. Unless everybody else in that picture, all seven of them, are also well over six foot tall, then myth busted. Also, I've seen a couple of pictures of Ned's brother, and he's of average height as well. What's not a myth is that Ned Christie was a skilled worker. That part of his life is 100% true. He learned blacksmithing from his father and became a pretty damn good gunsmith as well. And as far as I'm concerned, those are like two of the top skills you need once the coming collapse of society happens. When the Russians finally attack us and I go full-on Patrick Swayze from Red Dawn, I want somebody like Ned Christie in my bunker with me. A dude that can fix guns and make stuff from fire and muscle and steel. And not only could Ned fix and modify firearms, but he also knew how to use them. According to Ned's last wife, Nancy, who survived him by a number of years, Christie could, quote, draw his guns so fast you would never see him leave the holster. But there they were, having magically jumped into his hands. By the way, those guns of his, his revolvers, were given to him by his father, Wade. They were the pistols that Wade carried during the Civil War, and Ned used his talents as a gunsmith to convert them from black powder to being able to fire cartridges. So we're starting to get an idea of Ned Christie as a man. Educated, at least for the time and place. Talented with his hands. Loved playing the fiddle. Sounds like a pretty cool guy. Unfortunately, nobody's perfect. We all have our flaws. And in Ned's case, his flaw was that he had a keen interest in politics. Ugh, I know. No, uh, seriously. One thing you read about Ned Christie over and over again is that he was a Cherokee traditionalist. He was very interested in tribal politics and very adamant about the welfare and future of the Cherokee people, his people. And as such, he got involved. I mentioned earlier that the Cherokee had their own constitution. I also mentioned the book Ned Christie, The Creation of an Outlaw and Cherokee Hero by Devin Mahisua. I'm going to be referencing this book a lot on this episode. I found it to be really interesting, well-written, and I did lean on it heavily when I did my research. I highly recommend it if you want to dig deeper into Ned Christie. So yeah, I will be bringing it up from time to time. But in her book, Devin writes that the Cherokee Constitution was patterned after the U.S. Constitution and that it included three branches of tribal government, executive, judicial, and legislative. The legislative branch had two sections. The National Council, comprised of three representatives elected from each district, and the National Committee, which was comprised of two elected representatives. Ned Christie became an elected member of the National Council, and as a member of the council, he would help make crucial Cherokee Nation laws and regulations. Some of the responsibilities and duties of the council included making treaty stipulations, being able to impeach the principal chief and other leaders, amending and repealing acts and laws, approving sheriff appointments, appropriating money, and so on and so forth. This was no small thing. It was an honor for Ned to serve in this capacity, and a responsibility that he took very seriously. In order to do a good job and be a good representative for his people, he had to have a really good understanding of the laws and how current events affected him. And even though Ned was a traditionalist, he did support the local seminary schools. On one hand, he understood that they were the path for young Cherokee to learn and understand the white world that was quickly surrounding them. On the other hand, as a traditionalist, Ned was also a big advocate for the Cherokee culture as well, you know, retaining your identity and language. I'll give you a for instance when it came to the council trying to protect the Cherokee culture. After the Civil War, the number of mixed-blood Cherokees increased as the number of full-bloods decreased, mostly due to intermarriage. I read somewhere recently that something like 80% of all Cherokee women had white husbands by the year 1880. Now fact check me on that because I could have my numbers all mixed up. 
Now, I know it was a whole bunch. And one reason so many white dudes wanted to marry into the tribe was to have access to their land. This was also a big topic that Ned and the council weighed in on. They had to vet or, you know, investigate the potential husbands and give permission whether or not they can marry into the tribe. And if they got divorced or it was found out that they had wives elsewhere, it was the council's job to send them packing. Another issue that Ned weighed in on was the railroad passing through the Cherokee Nation, something that he, as a traditionalist, was opposed to. He was also opposed to the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act basically authorized the government to take tribal communal land and divide it up into allotments for individual tribal members or heads of households. And if I'm understanding the Dawes Act correctly, and that's a very big if, considering the limited capacity of my pea-sized brain, everyone in the tribe got a certain amount of land that was all their own, that they could do whatever they wanted to with. And any land that was left over after everything was divvied up became a surplus and available to sell, even to non-natives. And by even, I mean especially to non-natives, okay? The part of me that still believes that human beings are capable of decency and yet sometimes prone to the laws of unintended consequences thinks that maybe this kind of makes sense. It seems like, to me at least, this would be in the best interest of the tribes. You know, they become property owners. They now, as individuals, have land that they can sell if they choose to. And for some, like Quona Parker and the Comanche, it worked out well, I think. But the cynic in me and the realist knows that the Dawes Act was not contrived in the best interest of these tribes. It was simply a legal way of taking the remainder of their land, as well as quickening the process of assimilation. Or as I heard someone else put it, a sort of a cultural genocide via assimilation. So yeah, I can kind of see why Ned would be opposed to it. And I can also see why opposing both the Dawes Act and the railroads could piss off a lot of people in positions of power. But still, you know, so far... It's not really looking like Ned Christie is some sort of roving train robber or horse-thieving outlaw. I was joking around earlier when I said that Ned was flawed by being interested in politics. In all seriousness, he, like all of us, was indeed a flawed man. In his case, he did have a few violent encounters throughout his life, even before he became a fugitive. One such incident occurred when Ned was just 19, young and full of piss and vinegar. He was playing fiddle at a dance and he had his eyes on a young lady named Nanny Dick. But he weren't the only one. Another one of Nanny's potential suitors drunkenly grabbed her by the arm. And Ned didn't appreciate this too much and basically told the guy to kick rocks, nerd. The drunk responded by pulling a knife on young Ned Christie, who himself drew his revolver. Probably one of those converted revolvers of his that he got from his dad. Ned then gave the man a choice. You want to go home or you want to die? Seriously, I'm not making that up. I was joking about the nerd part. But Christie is really supposed to have asked this guy if he wanted to go home or die. And I'm totally going to use that line for something really trivial sometime very, very soon. Sounds like an easy decision though, right? I'm almost always going to go with the go-home choice. And for a moment, it looked like the drunken suitor was going to do just that. Ah, but pride. It's, uh, it's something else. He acted like he was going to go home, but instead he drew his own pistol, which resulted in Ned shooting the man in the shoulder. Needless to say, Ned got the girl. He and Annie would get married not long thereafter. It was a short-lived marriage, though. About two years later, she left Ned for, get ready for this, his own father. That's right. Ned's wife left him and got hitched to his dad, Watt Christie. Got to imagine that would make Thanksgiving just a little awkward. Ned, can you pass the cranberry sauce? <clears throat> Ned? Yeah, I heard you, Nanny. God damn it, Ned! You will call her mother! I'm your father, and she's my wife. I know she used to be your wife, but she's totally my wife now. Your stepmother, and you will treat her as such. I, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe something like that. Around the same time that Ned and Nanny got married, something else went down in the Cherokee Nation that I can only assume affected the way Ned would view the United States court system in years to come. A little something now known as the Going Snake Massacre. A key to a Cherokee named Zeke Proctor got into it with one of his neighbors, a white man named Jim Kesterson, possibly over a pig. Zeke threw down on Jim and ended up killing Jim's wife, Polly, on accident. Now, Polly was also a Cherokee, and as such, the Cherokee Nation felt that they had the authority to try Zeke in a Cherokee court. But because Jim was a white man and Zeke had intended to kill him, the authorities in Fort Smith wanted Zeke tried there in a white court of law. I'm glossing over a lot of details for the sake of the story, but this led to a confrontation that led to numerous people being killed and wounded. A U.S. Deputy Marshal and four members of his posse were among the dead, as were three Cherokee. And this all happened not too far from where Ned lived. Like I said, this must have shaped his view of authorities for Fort Smith. Had the Cherokee been allowed to try the accused their way, 
like they normally did, a whole lot of bloodshed certainly would have been avoided. By the way, you know, speaking of Ned and Nanny's marriage, Ned would be married a total of four times, as best as I can tell. He met wife number two in 1874, a lady named Peggy Tucker. They would have a son named James, but unfortunately Peggy would catch ill and pass away sometime around 1880. Ned's third wife was named Jenny Scraper, whom he married in 1881. Now, Jenny did not like Ned's drinking, which hints that he may have been more than a social drinker, another flaw that we'll discuss more in a moment. The two ended up getting divorced about a year after they got married. The last marriage was to Nancy Grease and took place around 1886, probably not too long before a certain deputy Maples was killed, which we'll also get to in a moment. As far as Ned's drinking goes, I don't know if he had been drinking at the dance when he shot that guy in the shoulder, but what I do know is that there was another violent incident, one that was much more serious that took place several years later, and this incident was most definitely influenced by alcohol. Whiskey, to be precise. You know, that devil's sweet tea. On Christmas Eve of 1884, Ned and his little brother Jack went to go shoot pigeons with some buddies. This was a pretty common occurrence as they could sell the pigeons for like five cents a dozen. Well, someone broke out a bottle or a jug, and once everybody had a good buzz on, Ned announced that he had had enough. For whatever reason, this caused one of his fellow pigeon shooters, a guy by the name of William Pallone, to get angry and call Ned a son of a bitch. Be careful who you curse at, y'all, and especially careful what type of curse words you use. Ned took the phrase son of a bitch literally, as in he figured Pallone was calling his mother a bitch. And some people do not like that kind of talk when it comes to their mamas. Before anyone knew what happened, William Pallone lay dead on the ground, three fresh holes from a Winchester ventilating his body. Ned did get arrested for this killing, and he was tried in a Cherokee court. But since everyone present testified that they weren't looking at the exact moment when Pallone was shot, and can be for certain that it was Ned who pulled the trigger, he was found not guilty. Years later, Ned's brother Jack would admit that both he and Ned shot Pallone due to the insult and that Ned was the one who shot first. Now, this all happened before Ned was a member of the council, and possibly as a testament to his character, it did not stop him from being elected. Neither did the shootings that members of his family took part in over the years. He had a half-brother who palled around with Blue Duck. Yeah, that Blue Duck. Check out the episode I did on The Real Lonesome Dove to find out the difference between the real Blue Duck and the fictional one. Over the years, there were other members of the Christie clan involved in shooting scrapes. The only reason I bring this up is, one, neither Ned Christie nor his family were saints or infallible, neither am I, and two, in the future, reporters and writers would play up these aspects of Ned's life after the Maple shooting, which I'm about to get to. All right, so what happened to Maples? How did Ned go from being a respected council member to an Indian outlaw, all Cherokee and no Choctaw, and was his baby a Chippewa? No, get out of here, Tim McGraw. Oh yeah, let's talk about the incident. It all started in May of 1887, when a deputy U.S. Marshal took a posse into Indian Territory in response to the illegal selling of whiskey, a federal crime. The HDIC, head deputy in charge, a guy by the name of Daniel Maples, showed up that evening in Taliqua and ended up getting shot from ambush. The shooter escaped and Deputy Maples died the next day. There's a lot of different versions of what actually happened, and I'm not going to go into all of them. But one of the main suspects was a guy named Bub Trainer, who had previously had trouble with the law. He had actually already been shot by a law officer in the past. Once Deputy Maples died, the law went looking for Bub and all his known associates as well. Guys like John Paris, or the more colorfully named Charlie Bobtail, John Hogshooter, and Looney Coon, all of whom declared their innocence. Both Bobtail and Bub Trainer swore that it was John Paris who killed Deputy Maples. But John Paris said that the real killer was, you guessed it, our very own Ned Christie. Now, Ned was in the town of Taliqua that night. He had been attending a council meeting. Ned was seen at a local house where men would go to buy whiskey. I doubt he was just there to say hello. So I think it's safe to say that Ned was getting his drink on. To what extent, nobody knows. One popular story goes that Ned got so drunk that he passed out in some bushes. In her book, Devin Mahisua points out that whenever Ned was in town, he stayed at his uncle's house, and there's no reason why Ned wouldn't have slept there as opposed to sleeping it off outside. But as somebody who's been drunk on many occasions, I can attest that where a drunk lays their head down rarely ever makes logical sense to anybody but the drunk. Nevertheless, Maples was dead, and he weren't no Cherokee. This is not something that would be played out in the Cherokee court system. The law out of Fort Smith were mostly white, and as such, they took a little bit more care into investigating the death of a fellow white man. I'm not trying to make a statement here, that's just the way it was. Especially so when that white man was a U.S. Deputy Marshal. 
This wasn't a simple matter of a Cherokee getting drunk and killing another Cherokee. And like I said, the other suspects all declared their innocence. And not just in Tahlequah. They did so in Judge Parker's court at Fort Smith, Arkansas. The only one who didn't come in and make a statement was Ned Christie. Even though he was indicted, he refused to show up. Why? That's the big question. Other than, you know, who actually killed Maples. If Ned Christie was innocent, why didn't he just show up and say so? If he was with his uncle that night, then he had an alibi. And unlike all the other guys, Ned did not have a long criminal history. Like I've already shown, he was a respected member of the council. So why not just go into Fort Smith? Maybe, and I'm just spitballing here, but maybe the Going Stink Massacre has something to do with Ned's decision. Maybe the Trail of Tears did as well. Or the many other times over the years that his people had been bent over and screwed by the United States government. Listen, I love America as much as anybody. But to ignore the fact that natives haven't always gotten a fair shake at the hands of the government would be to ignore reality. And Judge Parker wasn't exactly known for leniency. And he wouldn't call the hanging judge due to his fondness for jungle gyms or pull-up bars. So maybe Ned didn't want to risk getting his neck stretched. And I can't say I blame him. But still, the other suspects did go before Judge Parker and they did get off without doing any time, much less getting executed. Not going to Fort Smith made Ned look guilty. Whether or not he shot Maples at this point didn't even matter. Refusing to play ball and let the court system sort things out was as good as an admission of guilt as far as many were concerned at the time. Now, Ned did write a letter, supposedly. Story goes that he wrote a letter to Judge Parker denying being the shooter and saying that he'd turn himself in if the judge could assure that he'd be let out on bond so he could continue to gather evidence to prove his innocence. Nobody knows whether or not this letter was actually real. It's never been located. And I'm not saying that Ned never wrote the letter. I'm just saying that there's no evidence other than word of mouth. And even if he did write the letter, the judge either didn't receive it or didn't care. Hanging Judge Parker ordered U.S. Marshals to head to the Cherokee Nation and arrest Ned Christie. He was now officially a wanted man, and by default, an outlaw. So what did Ned do? You know, did he lamb chop it and go on the run? Head to the hills and form an outlaw gang of cutthroats? Negative. He simply went home. He didn't just ignore the fact that he was wanted by the law, though. He did resign from his position on the council, and he no longer made trips to Taliqua as far as I can tell. He was laying low, but at the same time, he wasn't exactly in the witness relocation program either. His location was known. The law knew where to find him if and when they chose to. But it doesn't really seem like there was all that big of a hurry to apprehend Ned Christie. It wasn't until late in the summer of 1889 that the law came knocking on his door, over three years after the death of Deputy Maples. A guy named Jacob Yoz had become the U.S. Marshal for the Western District of Arkansas under Judge Parker. This meant Indian Territory was under his jurisdiction. And Marshal Yoz put a deputy of his, a guy named Heck Thomas, on the Ned Christie case. Now, Heck Thomas is another legendary Wild West figure I put on voting an entire episode to one of these days. Pretty interesting guy. Just a couple of years older than Ned, Heck served as a courier during the Civil War at the tender age of 12. He then joined the Atlanta Georgia Police Force at the age of 17. In 1875, Heck and his family moved to Texas, where he became a guard for the railroads, a job that put him toe-to-toe with the outlaw Sam Bass and his gang when they tried to rob one of the trains that Heck was guarding. By 1885, Thomas was working for the Fort Worth Detective Association, where he helped take down the notorious Lee Gang. Shortly thereafter, he became a U.S. Deputy Marshal for Marshal Yeos. He, along with Bill Tillman and Chris Matson, comprised what was known as the Three Guardsmen, just three tough-ass lawmen tasked with cleaning up a very rough and rowdy Indian territory. But more on them at a later date. Just keep in mind, Deputy Heck Thomas wasn't no greenhorn. He was a very capable man. In September of 89, he, along with four others, surrounded Ned's house and called out for him to surrender, a request that Christie answered with gunfire, shooting from his attic. As you can imagine, Heck and his men began returning fire. During the ensuing gunfight, an outbuilding was set on fire, which soon spread to Ned's house, causing it to burst into flames. But not before one of the men under Heck, a deputy named Isbell, got shot in the shoulder. Ned went home alone at the time of this fight. At least one account I found stated that Ned's wife, Nancy, and his 13-year-old son, James, were there as well. So was Ned's cousin, an 18-year-old named Little Arch Wolf. Nancy and young James were able to get to safety, but when Little Arch Wolf tried to do the same, he got shot, supposedly through the lung. Remember, we got a no-shit, serious firefight going on here. Bullets are whizzing all over the place. Ned's house is going up in smoke, and now a deputy is seriously wounded, a wound that would later be described as crippling. When the deputies shot Wolf, they thought they had shot Ned, and they were in a big hurry to get Isbell to a doctor to try to save the man's life, so they set out for Taliqua. Ned didn't survive the fight unscathed either. 
Accounts vary as to where he was shot. Some say the end of his nose got blown off. Others say it was an eyeball. The extent of this injury varies as well. You know, some going so far as to say he was blinded, which obviously wasn't true. But he was hurting, and so was little Arch Wolf. At some point, Nancy returned to find Ned and Wolf still alive and was able to get them medical attention. Remember, Ned and Nancy hadn't been married all that long when this happened. Talk about an anniversary present. Hey, honey, I know we were talking about going and staying at that fancy bed and breakfast over in Tulsa. You know, the one with the room service. But, uh, <laughs> I kind of sort of accidentally got charged with killing a U.S. deputy marshal. So, uh, <laughs> whoopsie. Maybe next year. Love ya. No, uh, if, if Ned was thinking about still possibly turning himself in under the right conditions, he no longer considered it once his house got burned down. But he still wasn't going to let this scare him away from his home. According to family lore, Ned was determined to remain in the Cherokee Nation until his death. He was quoted as saying, I would rather die at home in my own nation with my people. I won't die in the white man's country. So he stuck around and he rebuilt. And by rebuilt, I mean that he built a damn fort. Double walled with sand in between the log walls just in case they tried to burn him out again. And he added gun ports so he could fire his rifle without exposing himself. He then began stocking up, ensuring that he had enough food, water, and ammo to withstand a siege. Doomsday bunker, Cherokee style. And I don't know if Ned had a sense of urgency as he constructed this fort, but as it turns out, there wasn't no hurry. It would be another three years before the law came calling again. Five years after Deputy Maples was killed. So why was it taking so long? Like I keep saying, Ned wasn't on the run, at least not in the literal sense. He wasn't hiding out in an outlaw lair somewhere. Every damn body knew where he lived. And honestly, I don't know why law enforcement was taking their sweet time. I'm sure part of it was that they were busy elsewhere. Remember, this was Indian Territory in the late 1880s and 1890s. How many of my prior episodes have had to do with this area around this time? This was Bass Reeves Territory. This was where Cherokee Bill and Rufus Buck and his gang of Lost Boys ran wild. It's where the Dalton Doolin gang plied their trade. It was a haven for outlaws of all sorts, and I'm sure the deputy marshals more than had their hands full. Speaking of Bass Reeves, legend has it that Ned Christie killed the legendary lawman. Legend also has it that Bass Reeves killed Ned Christie. Truth is, the two men never even met. But that didn't stop the press from saying that they did. In the intervening years between Heck Thomas burning Ned out and Ned's final showdown with the law, newspapers far and wide invented all sorts of crazy stories about Ned. Is part of the reason why people to this day consider him to have been a bloodthirsty desperado. Like I said, he and Bass Reeves were reported to have had a shootout. That never happened. It was also reported that Ned was an unrepentant killer who sold whiskey illegally, robbed stores, and killed innocent bystanders. They called him a, quote, bad Indian and the most desperate man, white, red, or black, as was ever produced in any country. They said that he was a notorious outlaw, a desperado, surly, reckless, and possessed a deep hatred for the law one of the territory's most savage outlaws. Even after he died, this misinformation went on. I mean, hell, I mentioned that Time Life book that was written in the 1970s that said he was a bank robber. None of this was true, except the part about him selling whiskey illegally. It looks like he may have done a little bootlegging to make ends meet while he was a wanted man. And he possibly may have killed a man while doing so. In February of 1888, well over a year before the Heck Thomas shootout, supposedly Ned went to go pick up a whiskey shipment. Another Cherokee named Bear Grimmett got to it first and claimed it for himself. Some shit went down and Grimmett got got. He ended up dead. Remember how those papers loved to sensationalize things? Well, they claimed that Ned Christie and his band of outlaw ruffians, as they put it, hunted Bear Grimmett down and blew his head off with a load of buckshot. They wrote that Ned was the leader of a gang of outlaws and outlaw chief who killed Grimmett because he had information that would implicate Ned Christie in all sorts of criminal acts. Unlike the killing of Maples, Ned actually went to court over the death of Grimmett. Difference was that it was a Cherokee court, just like the court he went to after he killed that guy that called him a son of a bitch. I guess Christie felt safe putting himself through the Cherokee system. You know, he thought he would get a fair shake. So did he kill Bear Grimmett? According to eyewitnesses, he did not. And according to the Cherokee court, he was innocent as well because they exonerated him. The newspapers at the time refused to let a few facts get in the way of a good story, so they just ran with their own version of whatever happened. Exonerated or not, though, Ned was still a wanted man due to the Maples murder. After Heck Thomas burned him out, a $500 bounty was placed on his head. This amount would eventually grow to 1000 bucks before everything was said and done. And like I said, after Ned built that fort, it would take a long time for the law to come calling again. But come they would. In October of 1892, they once again decided to have a try at old Ned Christie. They came upon him early in the morning as Ned was eating breakfast. 
Just like before with Heck Thomas, the lawman called out for him to surrender. And just like before, Ned answered with gunfire, this time shooting one deputy in the foot and another in the neck. And once again, an outbuilding was set on fire. But the fort wasn't anywhere near as susceptible to flames as was his old home. Credit where credit's due, though. The lawmen did take this into consideration and brought along some dynamite. But for whatever reason, they couldn't get the fuse to stay lit. The men at some point wired Marshal Yo's requesting backup, which he promised he'd have there by nightfall. But by the time they arrived, Ned Christie had snuck off from the fort to safety. The papers would falsely report that the fort was burned down and that there was a buttload of stolen goods found inside of it. Neither of these claims turned out to be true. Doesn't matter, though. Marshal Yo's wasn't going to wait around no two more years before trying Christie again. He sent more men after Ned just 23 days later, on November 3rd, 1892. Altogether, there were about 22 men, led by, I think, a guy named Gideon Cap White. And I say I think because there's so many different versions of how many people took part in this raid. In the book I keep referencing, Ned Christie, The Creation of an Outlaw and Cherokee Hero, Devin Mahisua lists 22 men that she pieced together from letters written by Marshall Yoz in combination with analysis of photographs taken after the event. It's worth noting that one of these men that accompanied the posse was also a Cherokee, a member of the Kitua, just like Ned. This guy, his name was Ben Knight, was a Cherokee sheriff. And he was there not as a guide, as some people claim. They already knew where to find Ned. But Knight was there just as a failsafe, just so they could call out to Ned in both English and Cherokee. I guess they didn't want any misunderstandings. As far as who all was at Ned's home slash fort that morning, you had the man of the hour, Ned Christie, his poor long-suffering wife, Nancy, who, as Devin points out in her book, likely was responsible for keeping home and hearth intact during this whole ordeal. You had her son from another marriage, Albert. Ned's daughter, Mary, and Mary's daughter, Charlotte, were also there. And so was Ned's son, Jim. Remember Arch Wolf, the cousin who got shot a few years earlier? He was there as well, possibly. And so was Charles Hare, a 12-year-old Cherokee boy who sometimes worked for Ned. As the sun started coming up, Arch Wolf exited the fort and was confronted by deputies who told him to surrender. According to them, he began firing, so they responded, piercing him with a dozen bullets. In reality, Wolf was not shot at at all, and it's unclear whether or not he fired at the deputies. It's also unclear whether or not he was even there. At least one person later claimed that the only males present when the fighting began were Ned Christie and the 12-year-old boy, Charles Hare. Ned was called out to, both in Cherokee and English, to surrender. And just like always, he responded in the form of gunfire. At this point, both sides started firing at each other, and the women were able to slip out through the root cellar. Remember how last time the lawmen brought dynamite? Well, they did this time too, but that's not all. They lugged a cannon along as well. They were determined to get Ned one way or the other. It wasn't a huge cannon though, so don't get all excited. I don't know the technical term for whatever they had, but it only had like a four-foot-long barrel and a one-inch bore. And it really wasn't very effective. They'd pack it full of powder and projectiles, ram it with a stick, and use another stick wrapped in cloth and dipped in kerosene to light the powder on the touch hole. It was loud as hell, but it didn't do any damage. Matter of fact, one of the deputies would later say that the, quote, cannonballs just bounced off the fort and right back at them. They fired it over and over again and finally decided to really pack it with a heavy charge, which caused the cannon to blow up. So, so much for that idea. The gun battle between Ned and the deputies continued throughout the day all the way till nightfall. That's when the deputies made a little fort of their own, out of a wagon using fence rails. At some point, probably around 4 in the morning, they decided to put their wagon fort and the dynamite into play and see if they couldn't blow Ned out of the fort. So, as always... There's a lot of different versions of what exactly went down there at Ned's house that night. But probably a deputy named Charlie Copeland rushed Ned's house using that wagon as a barricade and placed the dynamite against its walls while the other deputies laid down covering fire. Like I said, lots of different versions of what happened. No matter which one may be true, the end result was the same. Copeland lit the dynamite and it did blast a large hole in the wall of Ned's fort, as well as setting the heavy log walls on fire. This caused Ned to come out in the open, possibly firing his revolvers. And once out in the open, he was gunned down. Shot dead at the age of 39. One deputy claimed that Ned stumbled out awkwardly, all of his clothes blown from his body, and that he then staggered a few feet and fell dead. But the same guy who said this also said that seven of Ned Christie's outlaw band were strewn dead around the fort as well. This is false, as the only men that were present at the time were Ned and the 12-year-old boy. Marshal Yoz would later say that nobody actually knew exactly who killed Ned. They were all shooting in the dark at night, and everybody was shooting. I'm not even sure if Ned came out guns a-blazing, or if he ran out of the cabin once it was blown apart trying to escape. I even saw one account that claimed that he was already out of ammo. 
A lot of the deputies present would later claim to have been the ones that made the kill shot, though. One paper would write that Ned was shot a total of 117 times. If you look at the picture of Ned after he was killed, it's not exactly covered with bullet holes or stained with blood or burned up looking. I suppose they could have dressed him up in different clothes, but it doesn't look like that's what happened. Once again, according to Marshall Yeo's, when Ned exited the fort, he was able to get off one shot with his revolver before he was shot in the shoulder, head, and side. And that he then lay still on the ground for at least five minutes before they realized he was dead. And that sounds more believable than any of the other versions. According to author Devin Mahisua, quote, The commonality among these stories is that Christie is described as almost flying out of his home, guns drawn, before it is destroyed. End quote. As far as the poor kid Charlie Hare, he was still in the burning building and ended up getting severe burns all over his head, face, hands, and back. We'll never know exactly how Ned died. Did he burst out of his burning fort defiantly, guns a-blazing? Or was he out of ammo and just trying to make a run for it? And does it even matter? Five long years after the death of Deputy Maples, the long arm of the law had finally caught up with Ned Christie. They hauled Ned's body to Fort Smith to collect the reward money and propped him up against the door, posing around the dead Cherokee. You've probably seen the picture. I've already mentioned it a couple of times. If you haven't seen it and pictures of dead men don't bother you, go ahead and give it a goog. That's short for Google. You may or may not be familiar with the phrase gripping grin, but you know what the phrase means. It's when a hunter poses with his prey. A dead deer, for example. He grips the animal by the antlers, holding its head up as he grins at the camera. Seconds later, he'll have an Instagram-worthy picture to share with all of his friends. That's a gripping grin. I'm guilty of it. I have at least three pictures I can think of off the top of my head of me posing with a deer that I shot. I even did one with a squirrel I killed as a joke. It was that time of the year when everybody was posing with their trophy bucks and all I killed was a squirrel, so I was like, yeah, well look what I got. And yes, I did eat the squirrel. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is Ned Christie wasn't a squirrel or a trophy buck. He was a man. So it is a little disturbing to think about what was done to his dead body. Not only were the pictures taken, but he was put on display, kind of like Morgan Freeman's character in the movie Unforgiven, who also was named Ned. Postcards were made out of these pictures and sold at nearby stores. For however long he was on display, a couple of days, people walked by and gawked at his dead body. By the way, Ned had short hair in these death photos, as opposed to the long hair he's seen as having in all the other pictures. According to Devin Mahisua, Ned saw his death coming and had his wife Nancy cut his long hair short. They then wrapped his locks up with otter string and prayed over it before burying it outside their home. Once again, according to Devin, cutting one's hair among many tribes was a sign of mourning. Ned felt that his time had come. Is this true? I don't know. But I do 100% believe that some people are prone to death premonitions. I've heard too many stories of soldiers knowing when their time was up, saying so, and then not coming back from that particular mission alive. Here's another by the way. That rifle in Ned's dead hands wasn't his. Mm-mm. That rifle in the picture belonged to a deputy who said, quote, This feller died by the gun. He ought to have his picture taken with one. You know, as far as the picture goes, I understand taking a picture. We've discussed photos of dead outlaws before on this podcast, about how sketchy it was that there was no pictures taken of Billy the Kid when he was killed. Or, you know, even using a modern-day example, how were there no pictures of a dead Bin Laden released to the public? You take a picture partly as proof. Look, we got the bad man. And maybe if Ned were just your average run-of-the-mill Indian Territory bad guy, maybe the pictures wouldn't be so creepy. But as we now know, that wasn't the case. And then you toss in the idea that there's a damn good chance that Ned was not guilty of killing Deputy Maples, that he was an innocent man, it makes it even worse. And if he were an innocent man, which many, many people now believe, that means that representatives of the United States government came onto his property where he lived with his family and killed him. They then put his body on display as if he were a wild animal. Looking at the picture in this light, it doesn't necessarily look like a bunch of good guys posing around a bad guy, like I assumed was the situation as a kid when I thumbed through that aforementioned Time Life book on gunfighters. But that said, I'm also not claiming that the deputies that killed Ned were necessarily bad men. I'm sure they read all the same papers I mentioned earlier that were constantly vilifying Ned Christie as some sort of a monster. You know, that's just one of the many reasons you got to be real careful where you get your news, even nowadays. Hashtag fake news. Also, if the deputies are to be believed, they did call out for Ned to surrender multiple times. And in a letter that Marshall Yoes wrote after the fight, he expressed regret that Ned had been killed as opposed to just captured. Also, Judge Parker did not hang every man that entered his court. 
There's no proof that Ned would not have had a fair trial. I couldn't help but think of Ruby Ridge when I was researching this episode. I know the Ned Christie and Randy Weaver cases aren't really similar, but both men were holed up at home, armed, and refusing to surrender to authorities. In both cases, a lot of blood was spilled, people got killed, and it's not necessarily a given that had they gone in and surrendered to the law, that the results would have been the same. And I'm also reminded at the same time of Nate Champion, who was also surrounded by overwhelming numbers, his cabin set on fire, and forced to rush into a wall of bullets, guns ablazing. And just a few months prior to Ned Christie being killed. To most people, Nate Champion embodies that Wild West sense of courage and individualism. He stood up for himself and bucked the odds and refused to back down. And he died for his determination. But his death is a reminder to all of us that there are some things that will gnaw at a man worse than dying. And to many people, Ned Christie also embodies the same ideal. He's a hero to the Cherokee people. But still, the question remains, did Ned kill Deputy Maples? And if not him, then who? 20-some-odd years after Ned Christie's death, a Cherokee freedman by the name of Dick Humphreys came forward saying that he was an eyewitness to the murder of Deputy Maples. And the shooter? He claimed it was Bub Trainer. Remember him? There are holes in Humphreys' claims, though, at least according to Devin Mahisua. These inconsistencies are covered in her book, and some of them I don't agree with. However, one of the holes is that Humphreys never came forward because he was scared of Bub Trainer. But Trainer was killed in 1896, four years after Ned was killed. Why not come forward then instead of waiting another 22 years? Also, as far as I can tell, nobody knows who interviewed Humphreys, or even if he was really interviewed or even still alive in 1918 when these claims were made. He was an older man at the time of the Maple shooting, way back in 1887. The fact is, there are many different versions of what happened that night that Deputy Maples was murdered and I doubt we'll ever know what really happened. The other four men other than Ned, uh, Paris, Bobtail, Hogshooter, and Bub Trainer, got out of being charged for the crime, possibly simply because Ned refused to come in and tell his side of the story. You know, it made him seem guilty. That old adage, why would you run if you weren't guilty? As far as Bub Trainer goes, he was only part Cherokee. His daddy was a white man, and his mother helped the Cherokee Confederates during the war. Bub's sister was a local socialite who married up and even mingled with U.S. President McKinley. At one point, she was Miss Indian Territory. So the idea is that Bub was forgiven of quite a few sins based on his family, namely his sister. But who knows? Devin Mahisua seems to think that more than likely, it was John Paris who killed Maples. He was accused of being the shooter by Bobtail. He's the one who fingered Ned. And after 1890, Paris got the hell out of the territory. Unlike Ned Christie, John Paris made himself scarce. Why was this? You know, was he worried about the truth coming out? Hell if I know. Was Ned Christie innocent? Was he a hero for standing up against the government? Or was he a desperate outlaw? I'm leaning towards he was an innocent man, just mostly due to the fact that he never really went on the run and nothing in his life leading up to the Maple's death would indicate that he was a murderer or somebody inclined to kill a member of law enforcement from ambush. Please email me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. And please, please email me and let me know if I got anything wrong. I'm sure I did. Or at the very least, I left out some important facts. One thing I'd like to point out, when I do these episodes, I'm about as amateur as they come, y'all. I'm not a historian. I get stuff wrong all the time. It was just pointed out to me a couple of days ago that a picture I once posted of the outlaw Sam Bass was not Sam Bass. And I don't mind when people point out my mistakes. I don't have any ego wrapped up in whether or not I get the facts right or wrong on this podcast. And if I am wrong about something and it's pointed out to me, I do try to mention it on here. But I only have so much time to do these episodes. I'm not spending months or even years on one subject like an author has to do to really know what they're writing about. And I'm not a documentarian. I try to cite my sources, but I always end up forgetting something. Especially my earlier episodes, I really screwed up as far as uh, listing my sources. To the point that I actually do feel bad about not giving people credit when I used information that I found in their articles. This is something that was recently pointed out to me as well. When I did my episode on the Glanton Gang a long time ago, I used information from an article on the Texas State Historical Association written by Sloan Rogers. I will go ahead and link to it in this episode's description if you uh, want to check it out. In the case of Ned Christie, like I said, I leaned heavily on the book Ned Christie, The Creation of an Outlaw and Cherokee Hero by Devin Mahisua as well as articles I found online, namely from the OUPress.com, from OKHistory.org, and from Cherokee.org, the official website of the Cherokee Nation. 
Hell, I even looked at Wikipedia. Then on YouTube, I watched videos by the OCO TV channel and the Cherokee Phoenix channel and videos by a guy named Cherokee Phil. I'll try to link to all of them as well in this episode's description. Going to be lots of good links in the description for all you to peruse at your leisure. But even still, I'm sure I got something wrong. I just hope with the limited time and resources I have available, I at least did Ned Christie justice and the Cherokee people justice. As far as Ned Christie's body goes, it was finally released to his father who transported it back to his people there in the Cherokee Nation where he was laid to rest. Several years later, his father would join him in that same cemetery. It's known as the Watt Christie Cemetery, and it's just outside of Bidding Springs, Oklahoma, between Taliqua and Stillwell. Ned's wife Nancy lived a long time, eventually dying in 1921, and she was laid to rest in the Jack Christie Cemetery. Sadly, the land that the Jack Christie Cemetery was on was sold to a family who bulldozed all the caskets, bodies, and headstones into a lake in the 1980s, just to make room to graze more cattle. Remember Ned Christie's young cousin, Little Arch Wolf, and that 12-year-old Cherokee boy named Charles Hare? Well, they were both arrested, charged, and convicted of assault with the intent to kill a lawman. Due to Charles Hare's age, you know, not even a teenager, he was only sentenced to three years in the state reformatory all the way up in Illinois, far from his family. He may or may not have served that sentence, or even just a partial sentence. He was still alive and living in Oklahoma in 1902, and records show that he died there in 1907, at the young age of 27. Little Arch didn't receive his lenient ascendance. He was in prison for years before finally in 1903 being sent to the Ken Indian Insane Asylum in South Dakota. Now this Ken Indian Insane Asylum, eh, this place was something else. Just wow. I don't believe in ghosts, but there's no way in hell I'd sleep in the ruins of the Ken Indian Insane Asylum. Also known as the Hiawatha Insane Asylum, it was in operation from 1898 to 1934. And I know, I know, back in the day, we really didn't know what to do about crazy people. Nowadays, thanks to modern medication, they walk amongst us. One has to only take a gander at the comment section of any YouTube video or just casually scroll through Twitter to realize that verifiably insane people are now a semi-functioning part of society. But back in the day, you know, when you had that crazy niece or the little cousin who talked to dead people, you sent their asses away to asylums. The thing with this Indian asylum, though, was that a whole bunch of the people that got sent there weren't crazy. You could wind up there if you had a problem with alcoholism, if you opposed certain government or business interests, or if you were just flat out culturally misunderstood. They'd have buried my ass underneath that place, because I'm most certainly guilty on all three of those counts. There was an investigation conducted into Canton in 1927 where they determined that a large number of patients showed zero signs of mental illness. And not only that, but they were being detained in terrible conditions. And still, the place was allowed to keep operating for another seven years. All total, 121 people would die while being held at the Canton Indian Insane Asylum. And I like to think that Johnny Cash was talking about places like Canton when he sang in the classic song San Quentin, May you rot and burn in hell. May your walls fall and may I live to tell. May all the world forget you ever stood. And may all the world regret you did no good. I did some more digging into this Canton Asylum and just because I'd never heard of this place before. Holy shit, man. I found this escape attempt reported uh, in a 1905 edition of the Sioux Valley News on the website Indians with a Z.com. It horrifically reads, quote, The naked fugitive ran toward shelter, home, and sanity. Five men pursued him, one armed with a shotgun and one with a revolver. They scrambled over miles of rough terrain determined to bring the man back to the facility where he had been dragged against his will. Their article goes on to affirm what I already said about how many of the patients did not suffer from mental illness at all and were just deemed troublemakers by Indian agents. Many of them couldn't speak English, so that didn't help with any sort of diagnosis if they were indeed mentally ill. Some people were just sent there for having tuberculosis, others for having physical deformities or even just suffering from epilepsy. And of course, violence was the norm at Canton. There were nearly 400 Native Americans sent there all total, and like I said, 121 of those died. I'm no math whiz, but that's about 30%. One out of every three people that walked into Canton didn't make it out alive. And one of those, 121, was Ned Christie's cousin, Little Arch Wolf, who probably never even fired a single shot at an officer of the law. The powers that be did finally tear down the asylum in 1975 and replaced it with a golf course. Little Arch Wolf's body rests somewhere between the 4th and 5th fairways. Don't worry, though. 
The graves are surrounded by a fence to stop the golfers from playing over top of them. In Devon Mahisua's book, she really goes in depth on the Archwolf's trial and his time at Canton. So once again, get her book if you really want to get the good details. There are some really heartbreaking letters in there as well, sent by Archie's grandfather, just pleading for information on his grandson. Letters that were never answered. All right, and since we've been talking about the Cherokee, if you're listening to this as it's released, this is November, and November is now recognized as National Native American History Month. So I'm glad I have to cover a Native American this month. And since it's their month, I think it's a good time to mention a few things in regards to the original inhabitants of this continent. Things I'm not sure I can really even do anything about. But if I can even raise awareness to just a few of you out there listening, then I guess that's better than nothing. I've mentioned before on this podcast that I believe Native Americans, indigenous, whatever you want to call them, are some of the most marginalized people in this country. So here's some stats. According to the U.S. Census, 27% of all Native Americans live under the poverty line. That's one out of every four, y'all. According to the website powwows.com, at the Blackfoot Reservation in Montana, unemployment is at 69%. And the Lakota reservations in North and South Dakota constitute three of the five poorest counties in the entire United States of America. 46%, nearly half, of all Native American women have experienced physical abuse. And in some areas, Native American women are murdered at rates 10 times more than the nation's average. High school dropout rates among Native Americans are twice the nation's average and more than any other racial group. They're also subject to poor housing conditions. There's an estimated 90,000 Native Americans that are either underhoused or homeless. The IHS, or Indian Health Services, is supposed to provide health care to the Native Americans, but they're underfunded and lack some of the basic amenities needed to give adequate health care. Also, many Native American languages are going obsolete. Right now, there are only 175 languages that remain, and some estimates say that there will only be 20 left in another 30 years. I don't know what to do with all this information other than to share it. I don't know if giving to charity would help or, you know, getting in contact with politicians, maybe getting some laws passed would be better or both. I honestly don't know. I just think it's worth mentioning. We sure do love talking about Native Americans in stories and movies and podcasts. Looking at myself here. You know, we love jumping up and down and giggling and talking about how cool Geronimo and Crazy Horse were. But we forget that these people still walk amongst us. They're here now. They're as American as anybody else. And too damn many of them are suffering. But there is some good news. As of this most recent election, a record-breaking six Native Americans were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. And before you start crying about political parties, three of them were Democrats and three Republicans. So good for them. I'm glad their people are now being represented at some of the highest levels of the government. And since I'm recording this on Veterans Day, I'd also like to point out that between World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, over 100,000 Native Americans served in the United States military. And they continue to serve in high numbers following Vietnam. Since 9-11, nearly 19% of the entire population of Native Americans has served our military. That's a higher rate than any other racial demographic. And finally, according to an article on SmithsonianMag.com titled Native Americans Have Always Answered the Call to Serve, published recently on September 29th, there are currently, per the Department of Defense, 23,000 active-duty Native American men and women serving in our military. And to each and every one of them, I say thank you for your service. Thanks for protecting my white ass and helping to ensure my freedoms. Even the freedom to make a subpar podcast that nobody listens to. All right, y'all, that's about all I've got for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time listening, hi there. My name's Josh, and I'm the host of Bloody Beaver Podcast. As always, please contact me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com or head on over to bloodybeaver.com, hit that contact button. While you're there, check out some more episodes. If you like what you're hearing, hit that subscribe button. Do it now. And please, tell somebody about this podcast. Shout out to Art Lucero, Everett Weeks, Ross Leatherby, Billy McPherson, Justin Greninger, Eric Simpson, and everybody else. Even Skyberdine Systems, who I'm pretty sure is some sort of self-aware robot actively plotting to end the human race. And to Roger, who told me in all caps that my foul language is unnecessary. Roger, rest assured, I have been spoken to by HR. I'm on my last leg here at Bloody Beaver Productions. And I have been told that if I can no longer continue to talk about the extremely bloody and lawless Wild West where innocent people were murdered, women pimped out, Native Americans slaughtered, without using words like shit, fuck, piss, cocksucker, motherfucker, cunt, and or tits, 
then further action will be taken. And by HR, I do mean the voices in my head. And by further action, I mean absolutely nothing. My fucking podcast. Thank you all for listening. Adios. Thank you.